The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I am Bill Amadeo. From McMadison Amadeo and Grable and Associates and... I had a really deep story to tell today, but lately, um, a few things happened that throw me off my game a little bit. I did not hang up on you, Scott Crable. I couldn't hear you. Scott's upstairs saying I hung up on him. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you'll notice my coolie shirt. This is the version of Last Chance You for Law School. <laughs> I thought it was coolie. <laughs> We got um, we got a letter from Cooley today, and apparently our old law school is trying to sell us life insurance. What the hell is happening here? Did you hear? Evaluate your needs with this enclosed brochure. Twenty-year term life insurance is most popular for you under sixty-five. Is Cooley selling law life insurance? No, it's a, it's not, it's not. Somebody reached out. You know, we were talking about confessions today. What up, Joe Bear? What about confessionals today? I gotta tell you. Horrible stories about confessionals as a Catholic. So I grew up with confessionals. And what terrified me about confessionals, as a kid, remember something, guys? I was an altar boy for years. Then I worked in a rectory, which is where the priests live. And. <laughs> Wait a minute. Priests live in the rectory? The priests lived in the rectory. Oh, rectory. The rectory is the house for the priests. Excuse me, I don't anatomy. No, no. The nuns lived in the convents. Well, like, that's Which was a block away. You're right, Mike. I might need to ensure those two guys show back up. Somebody's talking about the trial next week. Well, they weren't employees of the Washtenaw County Prosecutor's Office, right? Mike, what prosecutor's office did those two work for? I'm curious. No, but okay. Hey, Brian Lundy, what's up? Everybody's coming out for this one today. So here was the thing about confessions. And Mike, you could relate to this as a Catholic. I would, you know, go to confession and then I'd work at the rectory. And all the priests would sit around, they'd be drunk at the dinner table. They'd be telling about people's confessions. Ah, I bet you know, Ashley Smith was screwing Bob Carpenter. I'm like, oh my god! Like, she told these people these things. I made up the names, but they told people these things in the confessional. And the priests are sharing them. So, like, you know, they, I'd go to confession after this. Like, I'd walk in the church. they say, have you, um... What have you done since your last confession? <laughs> well, I've done nothing against your will since I walked into this church five minutes ago. <laughs> but other than that, oh my God. You know, if you cursed, you'd be like 10 Hail Marys and Our Fathers. <laughs> I mean, imagine if they really knew. Penalties are a lot lighter today. It was horrible. 
I remember it was like horrifying learning that priests were sharing confessions outside the confessional. Like, you know, it's a strong Catholic. Like, oh, this is serious stuff. <laughs> Neither here nor. It depends what county you're in, sir. God. Is there a judge that's not pissed off at me right now? Like uh, some. Maybe in the second or third circuit? God, I. Mike used to lie in confessions. Yeah, I... Mike, I used to lie to my mental health professional. I didn't want that woman knowing about me. <laughs> Tell those people the truth. God, I'm going to share what's really going on in my mind. It's been enough I do these lies about her. If you watch closely. <laughs> if you watch closely to what I say on my podcast, you will be highly concerned. Oh, forgot my metro. Hi, I'm Bill Amadeo from McMadison Amadeo. And Grape almost so shy. I do that already. You already did. did you know. Know. Now I'm worried. <laughs> I'm really stressed out on Monday. This... I got a flat jacket. All right. Today, we're going to talk about something that happened in the summer of my sophomore year of high school. And I was thinking of the song, I Remember You by Skid Row. Remember that song? It's a great song, I Remember You. And in the song, something I couldn't relate to is there's this poor homeless guy, right? And this homeless guy is carrying on these pictures of this girl he was in love with back in the day. She was a really pretty girl, and he was a young, good-looking guy, and now he's homeless. Well, <laughs> a series of bad decisions occurred. Started with her. Started with her. So what I think happened is she left him. For like a guy from the suburbs or something and he poor guy lost it and i remember feeling so bad for this guy like oh man this poor guy's holding on to this memory as he's looking to get heat in a trash can i also thought to myself dude get over this shit right i don't care how good looking she was this is ridiculous stop okay and moral to the story here Guys, if a woman leaves you, I promise you, you can find someone cooler and better looking around the corner. You just gotta look. My hypothesis fails. <laughs> oh my god! Two and two could equal 22. If she's really smart, if we're stuck on the two and two equals four. Could you imagine, like, becoming homeless and losing your dreams because this girl left you? Oh, I mean, and the poor guy, if he looked her up today, okay, this is like 1989, right, on Skid Row, when they wrote that song, today on Facebook, we would see that. She may not look the same in 2024. I assure you, she has aged. Okay. <laughs> and that man today is a county And that man became a prosecutor. So, in the serious, more seriousness, summer after sophomore year of high school, um, right before mock trial hit, and I'm trying to find myself, right? And you're learning at Atlantic City High School what a caste system we had. The Atlantic City and the poor kids were on one side, and the Vetner and Martin kids were on the other side, and, you know, it was divided not just among race, 
but social economics. And you know, as I'm coming full circle with stuff, I still see things divided amongst social economics and race at times. Like, things didn't change. Somebody wrote this script. Like, some of us jumped into a different system, but at AC High, it was prototypical stock rails and market rules. <laughs> Fuck you. But, you know, I really wanted to have a badass junior year of high school as far as baseball went. And after work, I used to go to Baton Rouge Avenue, which was this beach, beach block on Baton Rouge, right? Right after Atlantic City. And on Baton Rouge, there were these sand dunes. So like a maniac, I used to run up and down the dunes. Like I was training. And I would do this till I was like puking. Like, you know, like you're doing suicide on the basketball court. I run up and down these dunes. The dunes are my thing. I felt safe there. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm just, I'm working out. And then I would read and write poetry. All things that were really normal for a white kid in the hood. And in Baton Rouge, you were safe enough. And one day, my world changed. And let me tell you about her. <laughs> there's, there's always a girl in this story, right? And this girl... <laughs> this girl was trouble. But let me explain what happened. Let's just call her um, Samantha. Is that a good name? Good fake name for her. So, Samantha is this beautiful Latina girl who was from the hood. And why was she even walking on the beach in Baton Rouge? I don't know. But I am laying, I'm sprawled out, exhausted, just heaved. And I, Scott Grable, give it a big shout to the peeps from the village. So, Samantha sees me. Now, let me tell you about Samantha. Samantha was cool as hell. She was that it girl, but she was ghetto. She was the girl, the 16-year-old, beautiful Spanish girl who had, like, a 28-year-old drug-dealing boyfriend. And you knew this boyfriend would kill you, but he found out you were messing with her. And at this point of life, I didn't even think she'd be into me. I mean, I'm a little nobody. I'm running on the dunes. I'm this tiny little white kid with no money, and I'm trying to become a good baseball player. And I had a knack for reading, except when those damn headaches hit from dyslexia. <laughs> we'll get there another time, though. So I'm laid down there, and we start talking. And we had this connection. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, maybe, I don't know, maybe the ghetto's not so bad, right? Like, if we just walk to Baton Rouge, this is amazing. Here's this beautiful girl. She's not from Margate or Ventnor, and she sees me for me. Now, mind you, I understand that she's got, like, this 28-year-old killer who she's dating, and she's trying to escape her home because there's a lot of dysfunction molestation in the home. It was an ugly situation for her. 
and we clicked. And every night, we would hang out. And this was like one of your first kisses, and you're like in love, you're by the sand and the ocean, and you're listening to your headphones, and she's asking what you're listening to, and you're telling her Def Leppard and Skid Row, and she's listening, she's into the same music. Holy shit! This is it. And then... There's a turning point in this tale. So it turns out Samantha was a bit of a plier. When I say a plier, she liked a wide variety of boys. There was a 28-year-old drug dealer. There was the 15-year-old white kid who's displaced. And then there was this shooby. Now, for those who don't know what a shooby is, Hey, Scott, I was going to shout out to the Shoebies of the 90s. A Shoebie was a kid that came from Philadelphia and spent the summer at the shore. They used to call them Shoebies because the joke was when they came, they used to put their lunch in a shoebox. Hence, they became a Shoebie. And this Shoebies family had a house in Margate. He was a wealthy Shoebie. And him and her met at an arcade in Atlantic City. Now, this is what's fascinating about this shoe because this shoebie's ignorant to what's going on in Atlantic City. He was just going to the arcade. Those two hit it off. He wasn't your regular Margate kid. But in her variety of the guys she liked, there's the gangbanger who's an adult, who'd be charged with CSC3 all day today. There's the shoebie who's in love with her. And there's me. I was just excited to kiss a girl back then. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And every night, I'd go work out. And she would come. Now, here's the thing about the shooby. She told me about how she was dating this guy. She said, I'm dating two guys, just so you know the story. I'm like, okay. You gotta understand something. At this point... This girl's the coolest thing in the world. You know what I mean? You're, like, you're 15 years old. Here is this beautiful girl from your same area as you. And you don't really... You're putting everything to the side. Like, logic is not in your mind right now. Because you're thinking, this is my coming-of-age moment. This is so cool. The waves, the beach, the beautiful girl. Well, things would change pretty quickly. She told me she was dating the Shuby. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And she told me about the guy who really was her boyfriend, the 28-year-old. Now, we knew who the 28-year-old was. This guy had a body count. When I say a body count, I don't mean hooked up with a lot of girls at frat parties and I got sued civilly. What I'm saying is, this guy, he literally would kill people. He was a big-time drug dealer in Atlantic City, very well-known at the time period. And she viewed the 28-year-old guy as her escape. The Shuby was the guy she liked, and I was the kid from Ducktown who she thought was intriguing. And she gave me this lesson in life. She was way ahead of me in life. And she said, you know, the way you're working out, the way you're climbing these dunes and reading, you're going to get out of here. You're going to be the one that gets out of here. She had this whole thing. You know, I said, we'll get out of here together. She's like, yeah, it's not going to happen for me. Like, she could tell her future right then and there. She says, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to never go to college. I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. Let's just enjoy this moment. Well, one day, we're at Baton Rouge. 
and we're just hanging out talking. When I say hanging out and talking, let me tell you guys, there was nothing sexual here. I was a kid, an innocent kid, who was just clueless to the world. And the shoebie shows up. He followed her. He was tracking her. And he is screaming in my face. Now, at this point, I'm a kid from the hood. I'm a long way from the assholes of St. James. I'm sitting there like, okay, well, fuck you. Let's go. We're in each other's face. And she's screaming at me, B, listen, don't worry. I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. But then, you know that story three is a crowd? Well, what the hell is four then? It was one thing when the Shuby and I were going at it. It was another thing when a 28-year-old boyfriend showed up. Now, I don't know if she had a road map where all these fucking guys were following her. But there's four of us on this beach. There is me, the little 15-year-old white kid. There's Samantha, the beautiful Spanish girl from Lang City. There is, let's just call him Craig, the white shooby from Margate slash Philly. And there is the 28-year-old gangbanger. And there's a lot of screaming going on. And the shooby boy, he's crying. I love her. I'm ready to die for her. The drug dealer, who's showing a gun, so I'm going to make your wish come true. And I'm thinking to myself, damn. This is what I get for kissing a girlfriend in April. <laughs> I gotta get the hell out of here. This was not good. So, drug dealer, he shoots. Doesn't hit anybody. It's like a scare tactic. He like shoots into the dunes, and like you could hear like a cannon. You ever heard a gunshot up close? It is like a cannon that goes off. And uh, he's screaming at both of us. And um. And she's crying, put the gun down, put the gun down. Long story short, um, we escape. And drug dealer basically says to us, you guys have an option right now. We could fight for her, or you could throw in the towel. The shooby boy said he was willing to die to be with her. I thought to myself, I'm going to get the hell out of here and live another day. Just, look, I will fight you, but when I see a gun, I want a whole ass. So, I convinced the Shuby guy, hey, we should both leave right now. At this point, Samantha is flirting with her 28-year-old boyfriend, telling him he's the only one. And you understand something, while you may deem her as a player, she was trying to hook us up right now, too. Yes, she put us in this situation, but she's trying to get us out of the situation. I convinced the Shuby guy to leave with me. And I convinced the 28-year-old drug dealer that that was his girl and they're going to be happy together. And me and the Shuby boy got the hell out of there. And we escaped that night. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, is this really happening? So long story short 
Let me give you a spoiler alert. What happened with these four people? The 28-year-old young man at the time, who is now, I guess he's 60 now, he has been in and out of the New Jersey Department of Corrections for years, but he's still alive. Probably a shot caller in prison. The Shuby guy has led a really sad existence. I had to look him up today. I Facebooked him, and I thought of the song I Remember You because for two reasons. One, that was one of the songs her and Samantha and I listened to, and two, he has selfies with her today. And she's got kids, which I'm assuming with the guy is in prison. But this guy, he's like working a menial job. And he's still like clinging on to the girl from the hood who he was in love with. <laughs> and, um, and I went a different direction. She called me, like, uh, six months after the fact, hey, can we hang out? And I just, oh, I'm really tied up. And I see her on Facebook today, and I see selfies with him. And those prison photos, you know those prison photos? They go there and they smile. <laughs> and, uh, that was the story of how I escaped Baton Rouge. Okay, I'm scared. No cops came! Dude, I never saw one cop! <laughs> the Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. It's working for the weekend thing. It's just become a normal thing. But, you know, sometimes you want to get some sleep. Last night... I was just going to crash, and I start looking at my phone and going over cases, and that's got to stop. I got to start getting more sleep, but you know, this stuff keeps you up at night sometimes. Um, and then this morning, I had an early conversation with a group of lawyers that want to go to the JTC. For those you don't know what the JTC is, the JTC is the Judicial Tenure Commission. The JTC is where you make complaints against judges. Let me explain a few things here. And this is just where the Atlantic City comes out of me. And we'll get into the drug scene in the 90s of Atlantic City, because the drug scene was something to behold. <laughs> That's one word for it. You know, and I say this as somebody who's straight edge, I've never even smoked a joint in my life. And I don't, if you use drugs, I don't judge you. But I'm just saying it's never been me, and I'll explain why that went the way it did. Mainly because of my Aunt Mary and Mom, but a lot of things happened. Hey, Joe, what's up? So, Judicial Tenure Commission is when you go to the reviewing authority to complain about a judge. And there's this one judge who, in my opinion is truly an asshole and a bunch of lawyers came to me and they want to go to the JTC on this individual and they said this judge is a piece of shit and this and that and I agree with them let me start with that I do agree this judge is a horrible judge and I agree they abused their power but let me explain my views on jurists so we're clear 
And I know some judges out there are going to watch my videos. So let me be very clear with all the judges that watch this. And this comes to the way Aunt Mare taught me. This is my ghetto upbringing, if you would. I realize when I come into your court, I'm a guest in your house. And as a guest in your house, I have to be respectful. And I'm going to be respectful. I'm also going to fight like hell for my client. And a good judge will not penalize you for zealous advocacy. And some are control freaks, and they'll try to shut you down. But I never have gone to the JTC on the judge. Morning, Amber. And I never will. I mean, I just don't go tell on teacher. And this one judge, who, in my opinion, is a horrible human being, and they laid me out in court one day. And I'm firing back. And this one judge said to me, I order you have to give up your phone to the court. I'm like, <laughs> the day I give up my phone to the court is the day I stop being a criminal defense lawyer. Nobody goes through my phone. And the judge said, I will give you 30 days in jail if you don't give up your phone. And I said to that judge, well, your honor, that will be the best marketing I could ever do because I will do 30 days in the Wayne County Jail before giving up my phone. And the judge is screaming, you think you're so tough. See how you are 30 days in jail? Like, I think I'll be okay. I grew up in the ghetto of Atlantic City. It'll be fine. I didn't go to jail and the judge didn't get my phone. And this judge had a lot of issues going on. And eventually the judge calls me on my cell. And they say to me, hey, can we talk in private? I'm like, sure. No problem, Your Honor. And the judge said to me, I realized um, I really went too far with things. And I realized you have a very valid JTC complaint against me. And I'm really concerned about that. And I just want to talk to you man to man that I don't want you going to the JTC on me. And I said to this judge, I said, we're cool man to man right now? He's like, yeah. I said, listen, because you're not in your black robe right now, I think you're an asshole. And I would give money, a lot of money, to somebody running against you. And if you ever want to fight and sign a consent form, I'd be down with that. But I'm not running to the JTC on you. I'm a man. I'm a kid from the ghetto. We don't go run and tell teacher. And, you know, if you don't like a judge's ruling, appeal them. Fight like hell for your client. Make a strong record. But if the judge yells and screams at you, just say, okay, your honor, have a good day and move on to your next court. I could never imagine going to the Judicial Tenure Committee on a judge. I could never imagine grieving another lawyer. Kicking another lawyer's ass? Sure. Fighting like hell, staying up at 3 in the morning, trying to beat that lawyer and prove something to the judge? Absolutely. But running... <laughs> Scott. But running to the JTC on the judge? I don't know. Or running to the Grievance Commission on another lawyer? It just seems like a tattletale thing. And I know, I've learned this a while ago, because I got cases in 17 counties. And I don't say that to brag. I, I tell you that because I probably need a lot of mental health therapy for having that many cases in that many different counties. But 
I would never run and tell teacher on anybody. That's just not my move. And for the lawyers that sit around and commiserate about that, you know, gotta tell you, there's um other things to do. And I guess I don't have time for drama because I'm going from court to court. I got too much going on to deal with drama in my life on any level. My cases bring me enough drama. I don't need drama outside of the courtroom. And I've gotten better at eliminating drama outside the courtroom. I just do not understand why anybody would go to the JTC. Now, I will tell you, if somebody's running against a judge that you think is a piece of crap, then give money to that person. Help them get on the bench. Go after the judge with your oral arguments and your checkbook and your right to vote. But don't try to take someone's career away from them. I mean, I can think of one judge right now who she should be nowhere near the bench. And um, if somebody ran in that county against her, I would give a ton of money. Just because there is abuse of authority sometimes. There is There are judges that go too far. But it is their house you're going to. And just because a judge yelled at you or talked down to you, you don't go run to the Judicial Tenure Committee against them. You outwork them. God, Scott Grable, I know you don't drink, but you, um, you got some weird things going on. But, okay. Again, Lions, Bills. Let's talk about the drug scene in South Jersey in the 90s. And, you know, it's kind of fascinating because drugs were such a huge part of the culture. And what I've learned as being a poor kid in the hood to living in the suburbs is that drugs plays a role in every aspect of your social economic climate. The difference is, um, in the suburbs, they do it in a more discreet manner. Let's break a few things down. And I'm going to break it down like this from the high school years. There was Atlantic City, which was predominantly black and Latino and Asian kids. There was Brigantine, to stereotype that's where white trash lived, but they had more money than Atlantic City kids. Ventnor was the quasi-suburbs, and Margate was the true suburbs. And I'll tell you guys a few stories today about the drug culture out there. And with the understanding, guys, I've always been straight edge. And straight edge means I've never even smoked a cigarette in my life. I've never had a sip of alcohol. And it was weird as I bartended and I grew up in a drug, drug culture. But, you know, Aunt Mare and Mom always told me, hey, don't smoke weed, don't do this, don't do that. I listen to them. And I'm not judging anyone that does that. But I, I do feel that marijuana can be a gateway to other drugs. And I also feel marijuana can provide benefit to cancer patients. If we knew today, if I knew today, if I had the knowledge of 2024 and 2006 and seven, I would have got mom weed because mom died a horrible death with ovarian cancer. She was a pretty woman who was really vain about her hair and she lost her hair and she was suffering. And I think marijuana does provide some benefits to that. I think those in need of marijuana should be smoking marijuana, but I think those that just use marijuana to get high, I think it's a bad route. 
you know, because I think it does lead to other things. I think it leads to bad decisions. That's my opinion. And if you smoke pot, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you my perspective on things. And my perspective comes from growing up in Ducktown. So let me explain Ducktown and Atlantic City as a whole. And I know people, Skylar Davis may have a different perspective on this. John Paxson may have a different perspective on this. Tara Twenty may have a different perspective on this. Three intelligent people there, they may look at this differently than myself, but you should talk to them. This is just through my lens right now. And in Atlantic City, the drug culture was huge in the 90s. I mean, cocaine was always the premier drug. But when crack hit, this led to gang violence. Because crack, if you had a few bucks, you get some crack. Heroin and crack were huge um, staples of the Atlantic City environment. Cocaine, not as much. Cocaine is where the suburbs live. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and you know what, Kimberly? If it works for you, that's good. Because I think it can help anxiety. I, I truly do. So, in the hood, if you would, we had our black gangs. And some of the gangs that were there, there were like... There were people that were Crips and people that were Bloods. We didn't really know they were so distinguished back then. There were the Pitney Lions. There were independent drug dealers. And people would fight for areas of drug distribution. Back Maryland had their career drug dealers. Stanley Holmes Village, Virginia Avenue Courts, and then Pitney Pitney Village is where we live next to Pitney. Depending upon what part of Pitney you lived, there was like a line of demarcation for who was dealing drugs. And quite often, to expand your territory, you know, they um, would kill the other drug dealer. And this was kind of horrifying as a uh, young white kid in the ghetto. You were watching these people kill each other, and I would watch like mothers on welfare when their kids were crying for food offer oral sex to drug dealers to get a hit of crack and you know at that point of life you kind of thought to yourself this is really fucked up um and aunt mary and mom were talking to me like hey we don't want you doing this now understand something prior to urban blight Prior to Pitney Village and Virginia Avenue courts and such all becoming these war zones, if you would, it was a very Italian neighborhood when the Mafia had a lot of influence. And the Mafia was very big into drug dealing, but they were drug dealing kind of in the casino genre. And Atlantic City, you had your casinos were the employees, and there was a huge drug epidemic within the employees of the casino. And on the board, we'll get these casinos, these multi-million dollar palaces to gamble and provide high-end hotels. On the boardwalk was resort-type area. Off the boardwalk was inner-city hell. 
And I think the Mafia really captured when they had power, and I don't know if they still do, but at this point of life, the white type of drug dealers that were Atlantic City born and bred really dealt within the casino industry. They weren't shooting up on Maryland Avenue for territory. The Asian kids, they really, they dealt some, but they were big in the illegal gambling. That was their big thing. And gambling always appealed to me more than drugs. So I got to know some of them. And I will say, inner city Atlantic City taught you a lot of things you didn't need to learn. But things became beneficial in life. I remember one of the first girls I had a huge crush on. And during high school, it was a weird time. Because you're white. And the Ventnor and Margate girls, I mean, they might want to hook up with you behind closed doors, but not in public. And uh, you're surrounded by black, Spanish, Asian. That's all that is surrounding you. And you formed a friendship or alliance with some of the kids you grew up with. But you understood the mindset was different. And I guess one of the lessons I learned is there was a girl I really liked at the age of 15, and she liked me. And we connected. She was a young Latina girl. And she came from a really messed up family. And I won't get into details, but I will tell you, it was a messed up family. And she started dating an older drug dealer. Now... She told me that, hey, I really like you, B, but he will kill you. And this guy's like 24, and she's a pretty 15-year-old girl. And this was standard stuff back then. I mean, today, it's CSC3s all day long, right? Stat rate. Back then, I mean, nobody charged or prosecuted these things. And she ended up with him because she viewed that as her way out of her dysfunctional home. And quite often young girls in Atlantic City would drop out of high school and be the wife or the side piece of big time drug dealers. And it was odd because now some of these girls looked up to the drug dealers the way the kids in the suburbs look up to lawyers or doctors. And you kind of thought like you were in two worlds because you know the drug dealers, it's a dead end, right? At some point, they're going to be dead or they're going to be in prison. But for the moment, it was highly frustrating. And I guess my come to Jesus moment happened at the age of 18. I just turned 18. And I'm um, working out the Alki, and the Alki was this little social club in Atlantic City. And you had a key to it, if you remember. And I snuck a couple friends in, and we used to box every night. There was a heavy bag back there, and a speed bag, and some weights. And it was kind of our escape. And there was somebody who used to hang out there a little bit. And this individual made us a huge offer. You know, to distribute some cocaine for him. And at the time, we were looking at $10,000, which was all the money in the world back then, you know. And it was hard to tell these other two poor kids not to do this. I didn't do it. You know, I chose not to take that opportunity. And the other two did. And the other two, 
were successful for a while. And, you know, and it's weird because I'm a bar porter at Tropicana at this point. And I'm at community college and I'm trying to save up money to get my family out of the ghetto. And you see these two guys you were friends with driving around in fancy cars, hooking up with pretty girls, living a lifestyle that you're trying to aspire to get to, but you're trying to do it a traditional way and not just go for what they did. And in the back of your mind, you know, you're saying to yourself, hey, I know I'm doing the right thing, but when you're in that moment, it's hard for a kid to give up those temptations. And I thank God that my aunt and mom, my grandfather, played a role in me not doing this because one of them is dead today. One of them is in prison today. But for the moment, it was an easy way out. And that's why I'm so anti-drug. And again, I'm not anti-drug to people that use, if you want to use drugs, my feeling's always been on this. You know, yeah, it, it did come in then for the, the two friends. One ended up dead and one ended up in prison. But to me, you know, if you want to legalize drugs, let's stop the gang violence and tax the shit out of it and put the money in this education. I don't know. But I, I just don't see drugs being a positive. And in Atlantic City, drugs were such a way to give you a perceived level of escape. And what I mean by that, when I say a perceived level of escape, it was a way to advance yourself based on social economics. And I will tell you, as you were making six eighty-five an hour and a little bit of tips as a bar porter, and you're seeing kids you know drive around in Ferraris, it was tough. Um, the temptation was there. Anybody tells you they weren't tempted by that. If somebody was in my shoes... And they tell you they did not consider the illegal option. They're full of shit. But as we know in the law, you can't punish someone for bad thoughts. Some prosecutors may have lost track of that, but it's true. In Brigantine, the drug dealing was a little different. Brigantine was really a big meth area back then. Um, the people I knew that were dealing drugs were really in the mess. That was their thing, and the white kids in Brigantine used to come into Atlantic City, some of them that were outliers. I mean, and these were kids that were, I mean, little nobodies. I remember this one kid with his Raiders jacket on, trying to talk like he was from the hood, and they always walked around in numbers. They were really, like, scared to be alone, but together, they were unified. And you understand something, and here's what I learned about the Brigantine drug dealers. They were unique enough to develop their own market, which was meth as opposed to crack and heroin. But they wanted to be cool like the Atlantic City kids, and to infiltrate that, they came together as a team kissed the ass of the Atlantic City drug dealers and really made your life difficult. When I say made your life difficult, if you were a straight kid, when I say straight, I mean no drugs, I'm not talking about sexual preference. 
you were a straight edge child in Atlantic City, especially being white in the 90s, you were not only dealing with the bullshit on the street corners, you were dealing with these idiots from Brigantine that came in to distribute what they wanted to do. Because when they saw you, they saw someone they could perceive as someone they could bully. And to those assholes that did bully us when we they were together, if you were alone one-on-one, -on -one, you never would have done shit. And all I gotta do is go to your goddamn Facebook page and see how your life is shit today. And I'm a little annoyed. I'm more annoyed at the brigantine drug dealers than the Atlantic City. Let me explain why. And I'm biased to the AC kids. In Atlantic City, it was such a level of learned behavior. It was there for generations. And it was told to some of these kids, this is just what you do. The Brigantine kids did not have that same type of environment. And I've always been bothered by people that had opportunity and threw themselves in the bullshit as opposed to the people that were surrounded by bullshit and had to try and get out of that bullshit. I always felt the kid that had opportunities should be judged in a more harsh manner than the kid that was surrounded by drama and crime. Because the kid that's surrounded by drama and crime, that's the kid that has to be really mentally strong to get out of that shit. The kid that looks for it is just looking to identify with something. They're all juveniles. We get this. But it bothered me more. The Brigantine kids were frustrating to me because they wanted to be hardcore when they could have just led a decent life without getting involved in that shit. And some of the poor Atlantic City kids didn't see a way out of that shit. So the AC kids, in my opinion, and again, I'm biased because I lived there, should have been given more of a pass than the asshole Brigantine kids. And if the asshole Brigantine kids, you're watching me, you had no reason to lead your life down a shitty road. And some of those poor AC kids that are in prison today didn't know any other way out. And that bothers me. And that's why I look at cases differently when the defendant is from Ann Arbor as opposed to the kid that's from Ypsilanti. I'll walk away from that topic right now. But those that understand, understand. The Ventner kids, this was different. Now they're in the suburbs. And I always found the kids in the suburbs, when they did drugs and sold drugs, it was done in a different manner. You know, these were the kids that were getting drugs from some college connect who was getting drugs from somebody else. It was like the factory assembly line going down there. And what the young Vetner, especially the Vetner girls would do, is they would go to college parties and guys would give them drugs and these were the cool guys. You know, it was a different animal and they didn't really mingle much with the Atlantic City kids. When you saw a Vetner kid buying drugs in Atlantic City, that means that that Vetner kid was socially rejected from their own and they're trying to infiltrate accepted somewhere. And this was even more magnified in Margate. Now, in Margate, this is where the millionaires lived. 
This is where the rich Jewish kids lived. And Margate was a huge haven for cocaine. And there's a difference. Cocaine, wealth. Crack, poor. And the Margate kids had, in my opinion, worse problems than the Atlantic City kids. And were given many free passes in the eyes of the law. A lot of this had to do with the benefit of their defense counsel. But what the Margate kids would do is when rich kids get high, they usually do cocaine. And again, this was a huge thing. The college kids and young adults would get cocaine to the pretty 16-year-old. And the pretty 16-year-old is connected to that guy. And there's a level of frustration there because when I think of the Atlantic City girl that gets with a drug dealer... That would have been her perceived way out. The Margate girl, who came from a level of economic stability, ended up with a cool drug dealer, the college kid, the good-looking older guy giving her a key of coke, or a line of coke, whatever. That was, like, just trying to be cool. And in all these situations, you see people with self-esteem issues, but the Margate kids, when they did drugs... It was like they would look down upon the Atlantic City kids, like, oh, look at those losers over there. But they were dealing in a more organized manner and dealing with drugs that were more severe. But because of their place in the caste system of socioeconomics, it was looked at differently. And um, as we moved from Atlantic City to Ventnor, I would just look at it and just shake my head. And I, the kids in the suburbs that dealt drugs and became career informants, and you know who I'm talking about. One person who's probably going to tune in after, you know who I'm talking about, who became a career informant because that individual was a little punk that wanted to be a thug but didn't want to deal with the consequence of being a thug and never need to be a thug because his family had money. There's one little asshole that it just sticks in my mind. This kid was so much chaos. His family had money. He lived in a good environment. But he wanted to be a thug. The problem is when he became a thug to protect himself from incarceration, he rolled on his friends. And these are the friends that he convinced to join him in thug life. So somebody sells you on an idea turns your life upside down because they're charismatic and then when the shit hits the fan that individual who you followed now plays a role in you getting incarcerated it's a fucking punk you've always been a punk and you would never have the balls to come up to me one on one I don't give a shit big time lawyer whatever you ever want it to go because this individual made so many poor kids' lives difficult. And rolled on so many people. And you know what, Kimberly? He's never been murdered. For 30 years now, he's been providing information and he just slides through. Um, The casino scene. Now, after high school, you learned a whole different type of drug environment. The casino's... If you wanted to get drugs, it was very simplistic. 
I learned more about drug distribution, bartending, and being a bar porter in a service bar than I ever did growing up in Atlantic City. And I think the casino industry and the college experience, they should be vlogs for another time. But that's my take on the drug scene in the 90s in South Jersey. Stereotyping here, but the AC kids saw it as a way to escape and understood the dangers involved. The brigantine kids, in some ways, wanted to be the AC kids and brought a new product in, trying to create this identity. The Ventner kids were trying to flex that they had more money than they did. The Margate kids who had more money took drug dealing to a different level and kept it based upon geography. And with all these scenarios, and I mean no disrespect to anybody smoking weed, but I did see when you start smoking weed at 14, you often graduate it to harder stuff at 17 and 18 and throughout your life. So I do think if weed, and Kimberly, I'll mention you here, if weed helps you with your anxiety, gummy is good. If weed helps a cancer patient with pain, I wish to God I could have got mom weed in a heartbeat. I would have bought my mother weed if I thought it would have brought her some comfort. But my mom understands something, and this is another dynamic here, which we can't really get into today. There's not enough time. But as a strong Catholic, drugs were wrong, too. I'm certainly not a strong Catholic today, but some of those lessons do still stick with you. Mom, if she was told that weed could help her, she still wouldn't have taken the weed because she thought it would be a non-Christian thing to do. And there's a dynamic there that the church plays in this whole drug perspective. And there's not a lot of things of lessons from my Catholic upbringing that stick with me, but the drug thing, it kind of, it just appealed to me at a young age that I shouldn't be doing this. You know, uh, two things that kind of creep down on us was you know safe sex because a child of the 90s we were terrified of AIDS um, I see kids today not being scared of that but it was a huge thing for us if you're in your mid 40s you sold those commercials with AIDS and you were terrified and the other thing was drugs you know it sounds stupid when Nancy Reagan said just said no to some of us that meant something um, you could mock it but I do think the message was important. That's just my lens, guys. All right. Have a good day. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the 
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.